Welcome to the Born in Trouble Podcast. I'm your host, John X. Back once again on a Tuesday evening with uh, Robert Brooks as my guest, as well as uh, someone I think you guys can all like and enjoy. This is my cousin Alexander. He's an expatriate in Brazil who's uh, lived a great life and has a lot of interesting stories to tell us and share with us today. And we'd like to thank you for you know, showing up today. Rob, would you just like to say hi to your audience? Good afternoon, everybody. I'm really excited to, to sit down and, and chop it up with Alexander. I've heard a lot about him over the years, so I'm really, really blessed to have this opportunity to chat with him. Okay. Uh, thanks, Rob, and thanks for keeping that clean. And uh, Alexander, would you like well, to say? You know, I, uh, uh, I'm i glad to be talking with both of you guys. I've talked with you a lot, John. I never talk with Rob. Uh, I hope I can be, I can share something with you that will be helpful for you. Uh, I'm not uh, uh, a genius by any long stretch of the imagination. So, you know, I've just had a lot of life experiences. And I can just say that my life has been eventful. And it's been a trip. And I've learned a few things along the way. I'm not sure that I've gotten to the wisdom state yet, but I've certainly <laughs> accumulated a lot of knowledge. Uh, and, you know, the final state is wisdom. And well, I can tell you I'll from. On your butt. That's <laughs> well, that's, I can. That has a lot to do with your wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can tell you, according to, um, you know, as, first of all, I've always been humbled to talk to you. I'm, I'm very, I very much appreciate your perspectives. And, um, I'm just going to go ahead and say that there's a, there's a ton of wisdom to be held and to be found from, from your experiences and your life experiences. And most people don't really understand and most people don't know. And that's why, that's why I asked you to do this. Um, and I was thrilled when you said yes. There are so many, especially with what's going on today with all of the black men and women marching in the streets and the wars and all the tumultuous stuff that goes on in our country right now. Um, a lot of I feel like a lot of what we lost is the experience of our elders and the wisdom of our elders. And that comes from living full lives. And one thing that really impresses me about you is that you've lived a life that you know, a lot, a lot of cats would see as being like, you know, almost like a, like a fucking Bond movie in a lot of different ways. You know, like a what? Like a Bond movie. <laughs> you know, what the hell is that? A James Bond movie. Oh, you, okay. you know, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> you know, you've, you've, you've had this great wealth of experience living, and especially from where you come from. Our family home is in North Carolina. During that time when they were well, let me let me let me uh, let me uh, uh, something just occurred to me uh, when I was about nine years old, I was uh, we my grandfather and I we were out in the cornfield looking for late August hams. Now most people don't know what August hams are; they're watermelons, and they're watermelons that. The watermelon season in North Carolina is August, but the birds eat the watermelon and they drop the seeds in the cornfields. And around October, you can walk through the cornfields and find large watermelons. And that's what my grandfather and I were doing. And we ran into, we were walking along and we, all of a sudden we walked up on a 
a guy who was laying in the middle of one of the cornrows. And uh, his name was Little Bro. I knew him. And uh, he was a hand that worked around the farms and that kind of stuff. Uh, but he was laying face down. So we turned him over. I thought, you know, maybe he was just drunk or something, but he was dead. And my grandfather looked at him and said, you know, I, I got that boy a job on a railroad, on the railroad, flying a, a steam engine. But he didn't want to take the job because he wanted to stay here and try to watch a no account girl that anybody could get right here in these cornrows. She said, now you see that? Don't be a spectator in your life, be a participator in your life. Don't stand on the sidelines and see your life go by as other people are going doing things. And that's what I've always done ever since I, he told me that. Mm. And uh, it's led me to a lot of different things and to a lot of places that I wouldn't have gone if I stayed down there, you know, plowing that mule on the farm. Mm. So one thing leads to another, you know, you, you, the, the, the only constant thing in the universe is change. And in order to grow, you have to change. You, you plant a seed and it has to change to grow. The same with, with life. If you don't change, if you don't move, you don't grow. You, you find people, I went back to Virginia where I went to high school, and I saw guys who were telling the same stories that we did, that we told in high school, and they never moved. They live on the same street, worked the same job, married to the same woman, drank the same whiskey, smoked the same cigarettes, watched the same television shows, and they haven't grown. They just stay in one place. So my life has been one of, I call it a moving feast of, of moving, of moving and moving and moving and changes. And uh, as Billy Eckstein would say, walk into the applause of life. Don't walk, don't just listen to the, to the music. Walk into it. When people clap, walk into it, call another tune so they don't forget what you just did. Yeah. And uh, uh, that's, you know, that's how I've accumulated all this scar tissue. Yeah. Wow. And uh, uh, if you don't, if you just, if you play it safe, some people are, feel safe running with the herd. I don't feel safe in the herd. I feel safe outside of the herd. But most people are herd people. They have herd mentality. They want to be in a crowd, be in a group, and uh, talking the same old shit and telling the same old stories, screwing the now, same way. Now, Alexander, you quoted Billy Eckstein there. Um, Billy Eckstein is one of those great voices that most of the people, my generation and younger, don't know as much about. Like, how did you come to quote Billy Eckstein? Well, I, 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 uh, I first of all, I, 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 I'm from that generation where Billy Eckstein was Mr. B, the big man. But how I really got to know Billy Eckstein was through Miles Davis. Miles Davis and I were friends. And Miles used to tell me about uh, when he first started playing. He played with 
Gladstone for a short period of time in the early days. And also about most people only know Billy Eckstein as a singer, but Eckstein was a band leader. He had he his band was the Bebop band. Charlie it was Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Fast Navarro, uh, James Moody, all those badass musicians that came out of that era played in Billy's band. And Billy was a pretty playboy type, but Billy didn't take no crap from nobody. I mean, he was he was a he was a hard nosed uh, 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 black dude, mm -hmm. and just because he was pretty, don't you didn't make one make make the mistake thinking that just because he was handsome he was soft because he wasn't, you know. And uh, um, Miles told me a lot of stories about him, and his applause, you know, walking into the applause was when you played a tune and. The, Call a tune while the people were still clapping. You know, and, and how did you and how did you meet Miles? Like you just dropped another name that just one of the one of the greats one of the great innovators. You talk about somebody who wasn't letting well, any letting anything grow beneath his feet. Well, I, I was a I was a trumpet player, and uh, uh, I went to uh, what's called I don't know if they still have it. But they used to have something called the June German in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And that was at the end of the tobacco harvesting season. And they would have a big tobacco warehouse and they have two bands, one on one end and one on the other. And this is was for all it was all black, it was segregated and what have you. And the night that I went, I was I think I was about twelve years old, and uh, my grandfather took me and uh, Louis Armstrong was one of the bands, and uh, 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 what's the guy's name that uh, did uh, After Hours? Uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, uh, uh, Louis Armstrong was there, and I, I was listening to him play trumpet, and I just got fascinated by the trumpet. And uh, my grandfather. Uh, saw my interest and he got me around to talk to Armstrong. And I said, how do I, you know, I get a trumpet, how do I learn how to play like you? And he said, don't try to play like me, play for yourself, play like yourself. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's how I got involved with trumpet playing. And uh, I ran into, uh, I was in Hawaii in the military doing, uh, and I ran into Johnny, uh, Johnny Griffin the tenor saxophone player, he was there. And uh, he was in this in the post band, and I ended up in the band too. And Johnny and I used to run around Honolulu looking for jam sessions on Sunday, you know. And uh, anyway, after after uh, the military, uh, I, I ended up in New York, and I ran into, I go down to Birdland, and uh, and uh, the Royals Loose where Miles and them were playing, and Dizzy was playing too. So I got to know Miles and Dizzy, and I hung out with them. But I wasn't playing then. I stopped playing. Uh, uh, but I was still, I decided I wasn't going to be a great trumpet player, but I would be a great trumpet listener. So I listened <laughs> to all the, <laughs> yeah, I listened. And, and Miles was the one that, that I mean, I, 
in the early days, I knew Miles was miles ahead, you know, of everybody mm -hmm. else. You know, there were a lot of great trumpet players out there, but there's nobody else out there that played like Miles. And uh, and I discovered what it was. Uh, and 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 most people don't know this about Miles, but his spacing. Miles was very stingy with his notes. He didn't play a lot of notes like most trumpet players. They would fascinate you, you know, with all the, you know, uh, Bird and all these other people. They would play a whole lot of notes, but Miles didn't play, didn't play a lot of notes. And the other thing is that Miles did not put pressure on the mouthpiece. If you watched Miles play trumpet, you would know he was playing because there was no pressure on the mouthpiece. That's how he got that sound that he gets. I mean, that, that is, he almost sounds like a voice. So you but didn't, anyway, so you didn't just become a great listener. You became a great observer. I became an observer, and I became a writer. I wrote about music. I wrote for Metronome and uh, Downbeat, and I did a couple of things to uh, other magazines, uh, the New York Times Magazine. I did some pieces, and I also wrote uh, uh, some um, liner notes for Miles when he was at Columbia. But uh, we got to, uh, 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 I wouldn't say that we were, boom coon friends but we, we i did a lot of traveling and miles did a lot of traveling and uh, we would run into each other various points of the land and we you know get together and and chat and stuff but uh, miles wasn't very big on talking and uh, uh i wasn't either i was very, very much into listening and uh, so we over the years we he didn't miss. He didn't miss. And uh, and one of my high school mates also rented one of Miles's apartments in that building we had on 72nd Street in New York. So I would run into Miles sometimes when I would go visit my friend Roger. Uh, but over the years, I mean, I, I guess we started around 50... Uh, we started in the late 50s, in the early 50s, in the early 50s. And then I went into the military and came back. And then we continued, you know, and I was flying. So I would be in a lot of different places and Miles would show up. If Miles would show, have a show, I'd go there, you know. And uh, that's how we, we But I knew all those musicians. I got to know them all. You, you mentioned yeah. military. Um, and yeah. I'm curious to know one why you joined the military um what's what were you filled with when you joined the military were you filled with that um you know patriotic fervor or was no. it way, what, mean, happened was, what, what happened was that i left virginia and uh went west playing trumpet and messing around I ended up in san francisco <laughs> working in a bar and one night a man came in there got named Silas Green and he said he was looking for a trumpet player. Uh, he had he was had the house band on a ship that ran between San Francisco and Honolulu. Uh, it was called the Lurling and it was a five day trip. A tourist people and, and business people as well, because airlines weren't that that many mm -hmm. flights in those days. But anyway, uh, uh 
uh, I was the only trumpet player that was available. And so I jumped, I, I, I was about, I just turned, I think I was going on 19, yeah, I was going on 19. And that was at the beginning of the Korean War. And uh, I got the job on the Little and I think I made three or four trips, round trips. And the next, the final trip I made, when I got off the boat, the military police was there waiting for me. And they arrested me and took me to the, to the uh, stockade in a place called Fort Shafter in, in, in Hawaii. And it turns out that I was, had been drafted, but I hadn't given a forward an address, so they didn't know where to contact me. And finally, they got in touch with my mother, and she knew where I was. She told them where I was, and, but she couldn't contact me because I was on the boat at the time. They So when I got off the boat, they said to put me in, in the stockade as a draft dodger. And they said, you have a choice, you know. You can uh, refuse to join the military, and uh, we'll give you a, a dishonorable discharge and a year in a stockade. Or you can join the military for three years, and your record will be clean. Well, I mean, that was a no-brainer, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's how I joined the military. <laughs> so do you remember what year that was? Yeah, it was 1951. Okay, and they and they said. I remember the day. I remember the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but, you know things things work out because in in uh, my great uncle uh, on my maternal side uh, was a pilot, but he was in World War One. Uh, in the, in Canada, Canadian Air Force, because the U.S. Air Force wouldn't let him fly. When he got out of the military, they gave him his his airplane, an old Southworth Camel, bi-wing Southworth Camel. He brought <laughs> the plane back to North Carolina and started a crop dusting business. He would he would uh, not one of these fancy ones, but he had some bellows and he would fill the thing up with uh, pesticides, and he'd flower the crops, and he'd be pressing this thing under his arm, shooting out powder, you know, pesticides over the crops. Well, anyway, he would let me ride in his lap in in, in this plane when I was, I was, I think I started when I was about eight or nine years old. You know? So when I went into the military, they asked if I had any special skills. I said, yeah, I'd ask flower lessons. Well, I ain't had no flying lesson. No, I don't. <laughs> you know? But it was a good lot. Yeah. Right, right. You so, know. So, so, so uh, Truman, Harry Truman, the old Ku Klux Klansman, you know, he just desegregated the military. Uh, it was Harry Truman who desegregated. And then he said, I want some new black jet pilots, not no World War II retreads, the Tuskegee Airmen. Chappie James and those guys, you know, ones who stayed in. They want some new guys. So they were looking over records, see them. They saw that I had this, I put down that I had flight training. And they came to me and said, you want to go to flight school? Hmm. Uh, so, look, you know, That's... anytime the military comes off and you, something is a trap. 
So what's the fucking trap? <laughs> the guy said, well, you, if you go to flight school, you have to sign up, transfer to the Air Force. You have to sign up for four years. I said, whoa, wait a minute. I've already done a year on this three. You know, I mean, I got to sign up for another four. <laughs> and the guy said, well, you know, you say you that flight school and two of them on some black pilots, and we're scraping the barrel trying to find people with any experience that can qualify. We're sure you can qualify, you know. And I said, well, uh, that don't, numbers don't matter. So the guy said, well, look, here's the deal. Right now, you are playing in the band and working as a lifeguard on the military rest camp. You've got a nice, easy life. You can either go to flight school right? or you can go to Korea with an M1 on your back. Mm. Once again, <laughs> that's damn not choices. <laughs> choices, yeah. man. You know, choices. Yeah. You know, it always good. So yeah. I went to flight school. And then that's yeah. how. You, you know, the one the, the one thing about that story that jumped out at me was your uncle coming back with the airplane and sitting you in his lap at nine years old. That's not something that would be considered legal right now. You know? Oh, no, no, <laughs> you, no. Even his plane wouldn't be legal now. He couldn't fly that plane now. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it eventually killed him. He killed himself. I mean, he crashed in it. Oh, it, wow. was, uh, it was uh, very unstable. I mean, I, I didn't know that much about flying, but I, I, I would see how you struggle trying to fly and also trying to pump that pesticide out, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually uh, 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 flew it into a oak tree and that was in a, him and the plane. But uh, uh, so, so you, were a, you were a fighter pilot, pilot in Korea. And, um, yeah, I to F-86. Now, did you stay in, like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the timeline here. Were you in just for that four years, or how long did you end up actually staying in the military as a pilot? 16 years, including, uh, but that's mostly reserve time. Okay. I did the four years and got out, and uh, but I stayed in the reserves because I enjoyed flying high-performance aircraft. And, uh, then the Vietnam thing jumped off, and uh, I had 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 moved up, uh, grown up to the, the new planes up to the one hundred five F one hundred five, the Thunderbird, okay. and uh, they called me back in the reserves into the Korean thing in nineteen. Uh, 69 it was 1969 and uh we we flew essentially uh, uh suicide missions in vietnam uh we flew we looked for the missile sites and we would provoke them to come online so that we could send information back to the bombers and the bombers would come along and bomb them but Sometimes when they came online, they came online firing those SAM missiles. And they, they were something. I mean, that was a telephone pole coming off the ground at 3,000 miles an hour. Mm. You know, so you had 11 seconds 
to uh, get out of the way or to what we did was we would just turn into the missile and then jink away at the last second because it couldn't pick up our heat trails but it was timing your timing had to be ex exact because you you were playing with seconds you weren't playing with minutes right you know and uh the uh the thunderbird was a very difficult plane very very and and no no maneuverability. It had no maneuverability at all. You know, now, level flight. It was fine, but then we got the F four, and the, what the F four proved was that if you put two engines that's big enough with enough thrust on a lead pipe, it'll fly. So that's <laughs> all. <laughs> it was a beast in terms of level. I mean, it was the first supersonic fighter but that's all it was it wouldn't turn you know and in order to turn it you have to do some real jinx you know uh and you you you, you ran it at the edge right on the edge of, of stalling and crashing to get it to turn and the only way you did the only reason you would do that was to get away from a missile you know and, uh, you know, and and like on that along those subjects, you know, you we've talked before, and um, we've talked about your time in Vietnam as a pilot because most of your time, and mostly about your time basically in captivity. Were you were you flying a F four at the time? Uh, uh, I guess a second or so, but I managed to get out before because the Sam didn't really the Sam exploded next to you. It wasn't running up your tailpipe. And uh, but I got out. I ejected. Uh, guy in back didn't get out. I don't know what, why he didn't. But uh, I got out and uh, landed in a rice paddy. And the people, the Vietnamese, they beat me. They almost killed me. They they broke. They beat me to a pulp damn near. But the Viet Cong rescued me, and I stayed in prison for two and a half years. Uh, most of the time I was there, I was, I was on heroin. They, they addicted me to heroin to make me sign documents that was against the United States. And that's why they kicked me out of the military. And uh, I lost all my benefits and everything. But uh, there were, again, choices. I had a choice of rest of my life in prison without parole or death by firing squad. And Lyndon Johnson said, no, I'm not going to let that happen to those guys. So he gave us pardons, but the pardons had a condition that we had to leave the military without any benefits. So I had four years to go to retire, and I lost 16 years. Wow. You know, but for a country that claims to, to love their, for a country that claims to love their veterans and respect the military, that's a an awful crappy thing to do. Um, well, look, let me let me back. Let me just get you on that. Mm -hmm. The military ain't nothing about loving the country. The military is about protecting those rich white men, their money. That's what the military is for. Mm -hmm. It ain't about all this other bullshit that people talk about. All these wars that we've been in. What have they been about? About protecting wealth. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Shit. You know, uh, 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 
Uh, I don't know if you saw that that photograph of the little girl running down the road naked. Yes. Yep. Well, I was up in that area that day. I been my my I had a led a, a three flight. I was a flight leader, and I had taken three planes up there. They called an airstrike, and they gave us the wrong. The, the coordinates were wrong, and we dropped the napalm on a on a village. Now I don't know if the napalm that I dropped hit that little girl, you know, but uh, that's a classic example of it. That had nothing to do with the stars and stripes, you know. It, it, the only thing it has to do, what, I say they should take the stars and stripes off that flag and put a dollar sign up there because that's what America's about, you know. It's about money. Yeah. And all the military does is all this, all this business of dollars they spend on the military and got nothing to do with democracy. If it was, they'd have Trump in jail now, you know. It's about protecting that money. It's about tech protecting the wealth of the rich white men, not just Americans, but around the world. You know? Having had the experiences that you've had, um, two-part question. One, would you join again knowing what you know now? And two, would you advise other exums coming up? Like when my generation was coming up, we were told that the military is a good way to get your college education paid for. You can get an education by going through the military. Would you advise well, future family members to join? Well, in that in that sense, if you're doing it, if you have something in mind of why you're doing it, you know, if you if if you're pimping the military, yeah, that's all right as far as I'm concerned. But mm -hmm. if you're going in there with this patriotism and you know defending the flag and democracy and all that. All you're doing is going there defending a rich white man. That's all. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I would advise anybody to do that. You know, white or black. And see, the thing is, the white guys are beginning to. Some of the white guys are beginning to realize they've been getting fucked the same as we have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the uh, Vietnam is a, is a good example. Uh, Iraq is another one. The Middle East is another one. You know. They're getting blown up and they're getting killed for what? What are they protecting? They're protecting the oil. You know, that's what they're there for. That's what that's all about. And uh, has nothing to do with, with uh, uh, if you're going in there to get the, 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 the GI Bill, fine. Do your three years or four years or whatever you do and get out, you know. But don't go in there thinking that you uh, uh, uh going in there for altruism, you know. That's, that's just my opinion. Uh, and uh, as you said, you got the scars on your butt. You earned that opinion. Yeah, I got I got I got. I was going through one going through one of my divorces and, and I say one of my divorces because I had several. But anyway, uh, this woman told me uh, uh, this friend of mine told me don't let her go, don't let her go, turn the other cheek. Well, I ran into that friend about six months later, and I said, look, I turned the other cheek. Now I've got scar tissue on all four cheeks. I don't have no more cheeks to turn. <laughs> Yo, I fight one shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, you know, a lot of people that are that are joining the military today, we don't have a draft right now. You know, you really, from listening to your story, you didn't have any choice whatsoever. Your choice was to give up a year or um, join. And then, like, later on, it turns out that you ended up spending three years in the most horrendous situation, the most um, horrible situation, being a prisoner of war in Vietnam at that time. And a lot of people came back and they didn't. And, you know, they, they definitely got the experience of not being appreciated at all by anyone in this country. Well, guys, guys, not only, they didn't just, uh, uh, the Vietnam thing, they, it wasn't just about prisoner of wars. Guys who just went there came back and people were spitting on them and throwing stuff at them, you know? Yeah. They, didn't, they didn't go to prison. They were out there you know, on the fire line and they survived the fire line, you know? And uh, they were mostly, the Vietnam vets, I think, are the most unappreciated uh, uh, veterans out there. But uh, they they weren't there protecting the people, you know? I mean, you know, how are you protecting people way over there in Vietnam? Ain't no Vietnamese attack in the United States, in New York, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 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 it's, it's, the military is all about protecting the rich. That's what it's about. Well, you know, thank thank God that you made it out of there. What I what I also find interesting is that in your writing, you said that when you were living in Canada, you actually um, went and sought out that young lady who was running there. No, the street. I wasn't. I wasn't living in Canada, but I I, uh, I was I was living in New York at the time. And I saw an article about her in Canada, and I went to see her. And uh, I explained to her what happened that day, and that I wasn't sure it was if it was me or someone in my my flight. And uh, she was very very gracious about it, and she said, "Well, you know, I survived it, and if you were there, you were sent there. You didn't go on your own accord." And she was she saw absolutely where I. Was. You know, we, we agreed on that. You know, I was there because I was sent there. I didn't go there. Uh, and uh, she said, you know, she if it was me, she forgave me. Yeah. Well, it shows a great it shows a great amount of empathy to even get on a train, plane, or you know, in a car, and even to take that trip to to say that to come face well, to face that, with that her. Image that image of her haunted me, and uh, and I knew that I was up in that area that day. And I knew what I was doing up there, what we were doing up there. And I had, I didn't know if it was me or not, or if it was us or not, you know? Uh, and it just haunted me all, all those years I would, I would see her. I'd see that little girl running down the street, down the road, you know, with no clothes on. And finally, when I found out where she was, I wanted to see her. I had another, uh, uh, when I was in the rice pad and they were beating me, I saw my wife uh, in the jungle and my daughter calling me. And I was actually running to the jungle. This is all in my mind. I wasn't really running, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kept running as I, I never got to the jungle. I just saw this wall of jungle, right? 
And I would have this dream uh, after many years after that uh, of, of running to the jungle. Well, when I was in Virginia taking care of my mother, she was dying of cancer. I renovated an area downstairs for a little apartment for me. And I had this dream again. And I was running. And all of a sudden, I ran into this cinder block wall. And it woke me up. You know? <laughs> I, I never had the dream anymore. <laughs> but uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Vietnam thing, wasn't, the, the prisoner war thing wasn't really that bad. It was just going, it was going on and off of cold turkey, going cold turkey off to her airway because they would force me off it. And then when I was in the, you know, in the, in the throes of, of withdrawal, they'd come with the documents and the needle. Mm. And say, mm. you know, you want, you want the needle sign the document. Shit, well, you, you addicted to heroin, man. You killed your mama. Mm. You know? Uh, Miles and I used to talk about that, you know, because Miles had a long, had, had a, not a long time, but he went through a really rough time, but he kicked the heroin thing. He didn't stop using drugs, but he didn't use it whatever anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he did cocaine and he drank, he did, he drank heavy. Really, really, uh, uh, Miles drinking is what killed him. Uh, the apology. What did you get? What, what, what changed within you when you, when you, got, when you got up there and you were able to apologize to her? Did it feel different the next day? Did you feel different? Yeah, the next day? Was yeah, there yeah. it was. It was, uh, you know, just a, a relief. It was. It, it it didn't resolve whether it was me or not, you know, but uh, her accepting, her her saying to me, "Look, uh, if it was you, I forgive you, because if it was you, were, you didn't go up there looking for me. You were sent. You were a part of the military." And they use you to drop bombs on us, you know. And that relieved me. Uh, uh, to this day, I don't know if it was me or not. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't even know if it's the same village. You know. Right. Well, they used. Uh, all you. I know is this: it was in the area, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of activity going on in that area that day. You know. So. Uh, well, they uh, used you, and then you were, and then you were eventually repatriated, and came back to the states. They took all of your service time away, um, and you were directly affected by that writer that John McCain had put in the bill. Right, right. You know, and we we uh, uh, we we uh, it took us uh, eighteen years, but uh, we finally got it got a settlement out of them. You know, and uh, I gave mine away. I didn't want any part. I kept a little piece of it, just a little piece, just in case, you know, I get incapacitated. That's what I'm sitting on now, you know. Uh, But I gave the rest of it away to my sons and some other unadopted, you know, unofficially uh, uh, adopted kids. You know, know? that's something that a lot of people wouldn't do. Did you feel like, you know, when you were giving that money away, um, I mean, that was that was three years of your life. You know, it was more than three years of your life. It was sixteen years in total, right? Sixteen in well, total. Well, it wasn't about it wasn't about time and 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 stuff. 
it was a lot of other stuff had gone on with me by then. Uh, I had reached this point of of total freedom and and uh, uh, freedom from things from accumulating. I've accumulated things. I've driven Ferraris. I've driven, I've flown jets. I've you know I've I've you know done all kinds of stuff. You know, but it's all consumption. All about things, 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 more things, and uh, more women, and more this, more that. And I, at, by this time, I had reached. I was living in Brazil when the settlement came. I had reached this state where I am now, what I call a state of grace, where things are not important to me. Uh, and all I knew, all I figured was that that amount of money would have complicated my life at that point at that age in my life. And so I gave it away. I didn't want it. How did you get to that that state of grace? Was it a was it a progressive? You were, oh, at, you were looking at your life oh, or was man. it day you man, just wake up and need this stuff gone? Man, you're talking about a long process. <laughs> a long, it was a long process. You know, I've been I've been to prison. I've I've been divorced. I've been shot at I've been hit upside the head with a cast iron frying pan, you know. <laughs> My mother only threatened to do that. <laughs> I've, 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 you know, I've, I've, I've had, I had, at one point, I had, my net worth was about $10 million. And uh, it was five, and I got greedy, and it went up to 10. And then I got slam dunked because the guy, my partner set me up. He was one of brought the deal to me, it was uh, uh, buying stock before it was, you know, uh, inside trading, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the deal went down, he got busted and he said it was me. And he was a white boy. So it was me. And uh, I went down to Pittsburgh, down to Petersburg, did my internship down there. I got eight years, but I only ended up, ended up doing nine months. But, uh, you know, uh, so I, I went from up there to down there. You know, I left Petersburg. They, when they let me out, I had $50 and a bus ticket to my mother's house because that was the only place I had to go. My wife had turned and rolled on me. And uh, uh, my kids, she's taking my kids away from me. And, you know, I was at the bottom of the barrel. And uh, uh, I've been very high in terms of, you know, being airline pilot, you know, and Madison Avenue, being a real estate developer and having big money and driving a Ferrari, you know, and, and shit, it, it just didn't matter anymore. So when I, uh, I ended up in Brazil uh, just by coincidence, not coincidence, because I don't believe in coincidence, but stuff happened. I got a, <clears throat> my mother died and I was sitting there trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I got a letter asking me to come to Brazil to do a magazine article. I did and I, I came and I stayed. I've been here 27 <laughs> years. <laughs> and, um, but anyway. Well, I mean, once you see those bikinis, it's hard to leave Brazil. Question, <laughs> to answer your question, it, it was an accumulation of a lot of things, you know, one on top of the other, one on top of the other. And finally, when I got to Brazil, 
uh, I, I remember I was I was way up on a mountaintop in a place called uh, uh, Chapachilla Manchina. A lot of, lot of, it's a, a mountainous area, and I was way up on top of it. I don't remember how I got it. I know I walked up there, but I don't remember getting up there. And I looked out over the landscape, and I said, you know, all that shit don't matter no more. And uh, right about that time, the settlement came. And at that point, I said, you know, I don't, I, I live very simple. Uh, I don't spend money. I don't hang out. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't, you know, I live very, very, very simple life, very close to nature. Do my plants. I do bonsai and orchids, and and uh, uh, that's it. You know, it's just I'm very happy. I'm happier than I've ever been in my life, and so, I don't have anything. So when you got that money, you were actually at the lowest point financially. In your life, but spiritually, you you actually found something at, different, is what you're saying. At the highest point, yeah. Financially, I was at my my lowest point. I'm still at my lowest point in terms of where I've been, you know, because I'm comfortable where I am, you know, because uh, the exchange rate gives me all the money that I need to live a comfortable life here. But it's not about things. I don't care about things, you know. Uh, the only thing I care about now is my adopted daughter and uh, her daughter. Her, I call her my granddaughter. Yeah. Other than that, but one of the one. So you how things go, John. And Rob, uh, one of the fellows that I gave some money to, and uh, uh, I, John, you know, I just went through this whole thing of the operation and. The guy selling the house and wanted me, I have to move and all that. So I was telling one of the fellows that I gave some money, some of the money to, and he said, look, you find a, some land, and I'm going to send you the money to build you a house so you won't have to be going through that shit anymore. You know? So that's what I'm into now. You know, I'm looking for a place to, I, I have a place in mind, and build a small, simple house. And I'll, you know, I'll be, I don't need the house, you know, but Hey, if he wants to do it, I'll I'll accept it. Yeah. You know, and uh, but hey, man, this is all about me. We, I wanted to, I thought we were going to talk about what happened with black women. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, actually, we plan on talking about you. <laughs> well, you sure, you sure well, set well, me up. <laughs> well, you married a bunch of them. What happened? <laughs> uh, well, you know. <laughs> and we we love I'm, them. I'm, I'm I'm proof that practice doesn't make perfect. Well, well, you know, if we want to, if we're gonna talk about black women, you have to you have to talk about some of your time as an airline pilot, and um. You know, you had you had expressed to me that in between all of these stories that you went to you went to work for um what was it, Pan Am first? Pan Am, yeah. Pan Am first. And, and then TWA. And then TWA. And mm -hmm. you were probably what how many black pilots would you encounter at that point in time? None. Just you. There was there was uh there were there was a guy ahead of me at Pan Am, uh, Collins, uh, I forget Collins' first name, 
there was uh, uh, eventually there was three or four uh, I know who was one of them there were three or four uh, uh, at TWA and I don't think there were any in the see TWA and Pan Am were international carriers Mm-hmm. I don't think there was any uh, uh, domestic black policy during the time that I was there. I don't remember seeing any. I had a cousin, one of our cousins, Irving Exum, who was a Tuskegee uh, airman. Uh, he flew charters. As a matter of fact, he flew me from Vietnam to Hawaii when I got out of, out of PLW. He was, he was flying Medvac. Uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, uh, Irving, uh, uh, he's, he's passed now, he passed, I think it was several years ago. But uh, other than that, they were during my time, they were when I first started with Pan Am, I was a flight engineer, and uh, San Francisco, we were flying a southern route to Hong Kong. San Francisco to Argentina. Argentina was a turnaround point. The pilots wouldn't talk to me about anything but flying the airplane. And they knew you were a Vietnam vet. Yeah, they and, knew. They knew I was qualified, but they wouldn't. They were white, and they wouldn't talk to me. They would talk to me about flying the airplane if they were having a you know chat chatty conversation. I tried to get in. They just stopped talking. Wow. That's why I left Pan Am. I told you know I'm not, I'm I'm going I'm leaving, and they said no no, and they tried to they kept me for a while and then TWA gave made me an offer so I went to TWA. And TWA the I'm I'm assuming that the environment in TWA was a lot better. It wasn't really better, but fortunately I I uh, the 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 first flight that. By that time, I had moved up to uh, a, a first officer and uh, uh, co-pilot, you call it, you know. And uh, the co-pilot is always the first one on the aircraft and start doing a preliminary flight check. Okay. So I was sitting, I was up there doing a, a preliminary flight check, and the captain came in. And when he came in and spoke to me, I heard that, that southern accent, I said, oh, shit, what am I, what have I got myself into? <laughs> I jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, he sat down and he looked over me and said, uh, he said, uh, I heard about the stuff that happened to you at Pan Am and while you were TWA, while you switched over to TWA. He said, I'm from Arkansas, and I've had more black pussy between the cornrows than you can think of. I got your back. Ain't nobody fucking with you over here. You you bid on my flights. You stay with me. (laughs) (laughs) And then we, we, uh, uh, to the day he passed, we were were boom coons, you know, straight up dude, straight up dude, no, you know, no. Uh, that's the thing about southern white boys. If they straight up, they straight up. If they ain't, they ain't. You know, mm-hmm. some of them are straight up. You know, 
and he was one of them. And uh, just, just, just he had my back. He had my back all the way along. Right? So that was a good thing. So at least you, at least you, you got some of that. It wasn't a completely and totally a hostile environment. No, 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 not, not, not really. Uh, I used to love to uh, 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 walk through the plane, though, to see the passengers. <laughs> Would they panic when they saw you? <laughs> we we just just used to have a thing uh, when we we would take off and we'd get to uh, uh, he would do you know that usual spill that the what the pilot does about we'll be flying you know at you know thirty thousand feet and. You know, we expect to be in, in New York at such, such a time. You know, the weather is this and that, that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> and Jets used to have a thing. He would do the spill. And as he was he was bringing his hand up to hit the toggle boat to cut off the, the intercom in the, the squat box, he would say, now I'm going to see if I can get this big motherfucker off the ground. And all I need is a cup of coffee and a blowjob. You know? <laughs> I said, man, one day you're going to miss that goddamn toggle boat. You know? <laughs> and he did one day. He <laughs> <laughs> had, had somebody to write up so he couldn't count them. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was... He was a twenty-year captain, you know. So they don't do nothing to him, you know. <laughs> right. If it had been me, I'd have been out of there before I got off the plane. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the kind of guy he was, man. He was funny. He had a real sense of humor. You know? <laughs> but uh, the the uh, my experiences, uh, it was throughout throughout life dealing with this black thing you know you 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 can never be sure of where you stand with these people you know and and uh i remember i don't know who said it but someone told me once some time ago that uh the 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 uh, a liberal Ain't nothing but a bigot in slow motion. It just takes you longer to find them out. Mm. You know, and if you think about it, when I look back, people that I've met, and I'm talking about white people now, you know, and not just white people, but the, the white people are not the only racists on this planet. You know, no. the Asians are, you know, and uh, uh, they have, you know, I speak Chinese. But that doesn't make me Chinese, you know. It doesn't. It, I I don't get away from their racism because they Chinese are some of the racist people on the planet, mm. you know. But uh, uh, it's everywhere, and it's in black people as well. That is without question. Yeah, and you, you and when you stop and think about it, you can't live in a system, you know. And not have some of it rub off on you. You can't go through, you know, you can't go through the system 
that they have set up without some of it rubbing off on you. You have to be extremely, extremely alert and uh, and and strong because it's easy to fall into that trap to act like them, to be one, want to be like them. Yeah, and uh, that's what I was telling you about how they ran that thing back in the sixties when they went in and got the smartest kids and took them off to these white schools and indoctrinated them. That's how they created integration. And that's how they destroyed the black community because they took all the cream of the crop off the, uh, out, 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 of, out of the neighborhood and they put it into integrated situations. And those people don't want to go back. They don't want to go back to no ghetto. They don't want to go back to the projects. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. Uh, well, and, and go ahead. That 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 that's. I'm not. I'm not a big. Uh, if you hear some noise, I'm slapping at mosquitoes, man. All of a sudden, I'm in Brazil, and you got to deal with these bad mosquitoes. Not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, the the I'm not a big history buff. I don't believe in. I don't do a lot of going back because that ain't where I'm going, you know. But sometimes you have to go back to understand where you are now. And that's what I was talking to you about the other night, John, is about what happened to black women way back there 300 years ago, you know. And it's still being manifest in our genes right now because once. I ran into this by accident, really, because I was doing a, a project on the out of Africa uh, migration, the, the original people who came out of Africa and populated the world. And I was doing it genetically. I was tracing the genes. And I ran into this article about the trauma, the genetics of trauma, that when people are traumatized, be it in a war, uh, a relationship, a bad relationship, or slavery, or the Holocaust, or what have you, it affects the genes. And over the years, those genes continue to mutate. So they don't just happen to, it just happening and it goes away, it stays. And many of the black women and the black men are still suffering from that traumatization of slavery. And that's why you have this conflict between black women and black men. You know, and I'm sure both of you are aware of this, especially if you dealt with a black woman, your mama, your sister, your cousin, your girlfriend, you know. Uh, so until we really understand this, you know, uh, uh, we can't begin to heal ourselves. That's we, keep, we keep going through the same old, old thing, you know, it's, like I said in one of the pieces that I wrote, I don't, I write so much shit, I don't know. But, you know, I've had so many black women to tell me that this black man all of a sudden goes upside her head for trifling shit. You know, something, when she done something else, they 10 times worse. Mm. And it baffles them. You it know, baffles me too. Yeah. But then when I saw this genetic thing, I begin to understand what's happening. You know, you know, Alexander, you know, Alexander, I'm going to cut you off because I would love 
to have you back on this podcast to expound upon that. This was really like I I've always thought that you've had that you have you have a great story. It's not stories, these are your stories. So it's not like it's not something that's being created or made up or written down on a piece of paper by someone who's imagining it. You actually lived it and there's so much depth and there's so much more to get into. But unfortunately our hour is up. Okay. So I didn't mean it. No, 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 no. You, no, you, you set you me could. up and got me talking about myself. And I don't usually <laughs> be, be telling my secrets here. Well, you know what? The, so we appreciate you telling your secrets here. We appreciate you sharing um, because that's, I mean, one of the things that, one of the other things that's been lost is that connection that, you know, when I grew up on Noble Street, you knew who all the adults were. The adults could tell on me. The adults could say, I saw Robert doing this. And there right. were people who could reach out to. I could go talk, talk to Buzzy Porter about something. Right. We've been moved out, disconnected now. Like there's no, there are no elders to go and get wisdom from, to hear. It just, hey, no, how would you navigate this? Ain't no big mamas. Yeah. Yeah. And I really want to continue this conversation. I want to do this again. And right. I want to pick it up exactly where we are. But well, like I said. Let's do it with the messenger. That, that seems easier. Yeah, this this did this did actually work out pretty well. And yeah. um yeah. you know, so at this point I'd just like to say I'd just like to thank you, Alexander Exum, for your for yeah. your um wisdom. Okay, John Exum. And uh <laughs> and uh Rob, let's, are you related to us? Uh, I what? Rob? Is Rob he Yeah, I'm here. Are you related are you related to us? Am I related to you? No, no, no. I grew up, uh, John and I lived about six blocks away from each other. We used to play basketball seemingly every day during junior Uh, high school. uh, Yeah, high school. But Rob's got, you know, Rob has a, he's got some interesting family stories too. So, and. um, But next time I want to hear his stories. Okay. We definitely will. And um, on that note, I'm going to go ahead and end this. And gentlemen, give yourselves a round of applause. One more time. All the pipes in the house. Thank you. Thank you. you, All right. I'll talk to you guys later. And yes, be well. And um, I'd like to take this time to thank everyone who's listening to this podcast, Born in Trouble. Tune in again. We'll have Alexander back hopefully within a a week or so, maybe two weeks or so, uh, to share share a little bit more of his wisdom and his stories with us. Rob? Don't put it too... Don't put it too far away, man. You know, cause uh, I'm 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 already uh, already made eighty eight. I'm getting up on eighty nine. So <laughs> don't put it too far. <laughs> That's real right there. There you go. Well, you know what? Maybe we'll be recording this weekend. So, um, <laughs> so I definitely will. So, thanks everybody right. for tuning in, and Rob, thanks again for sitting in on this you podcast. It. You know, my ace and my ace forever. So. I'm going to give you a round of applause and uh, born in trouble, you know, peace, peace.